Welcome back to the Axe Murder Diaries. I'm your host, Amanda, and today we are going to Buffalo, New York. Now, why would we do that? Um, because it was requested. So I've only been to Buffalo once, but I had a feeling that I would be able to find something, and I did. So if you want to request a case or an area, you can email me at theaxemurderdiaries at gmail.com. That's A-X-E. Um, you can message me on Instagram at theaxemurderdiaries. That was Luna you just heard. Um, also, let us know how we sound. I did get a new microphone, and I'm not technologically advanced. I just literally plugged it in. So let me know if it sounds better or worse, or neither. Alright, let's get into it. So we are talking about the axe murder of John Kerrigan in Buffalo, New York, August of 1898. Quote, Drunken son brained his sleeping father with an axe. John Kerrigan, a cartman, murdered in his bed. His head was almost severed from his body. That was the Buffalo Inquirer. Some background on the case. So the Kerrigan house consisted of John Kerrigan, his wife, Mrs. Kerrigan, that's the name that they give, and their four children, Loretta, 13, John, age 15, I'm assuming John Jr., Edwin or Eddie, age 17, and Frank, age 33. Frank Kerrigan was a member of the Buffalo Fire Department for six years, but was discharged for, quote, drunkenness. He was nicknamed Tubbs because he always wanted the largest tub of beer available. Frank was his mother's favorite son and was described as a, quote, good-hearted though worthless fellow. Again, these newspapers are never kind. John Kerrigan was described as frugal and stingy, and his wife was described as being the opposite. Quote, he made good money in his carting business, and Mrs. Kerrigan is said to have spent it quite freely. Apparently, Mrs. Kerrigan would give Frank money, and Frank would waste it on alcohol, and it caused a lot of arguments between John and his wife. On the Wednesday before the murder, John struck his wife, as he often did, and broke her wrist. Quote, this enraged Frank, and he is said to have made threats against his father for it. Now, when I was first reading about this case, I didn't hear about the argument with the wife. I did not hear about how he was allegedly commonly violent with her. Um, before I read that, I had no sympathy for this Frank character. Um, but the more I read about this case, the more troubled he seemed. And the, this, the more I read, the sadder this case became. Um, yeah, so let's get into the murder. At around 2 a.m. on Friday, August 26th, 1898, Frank Kerrigan returned home, presumably from a bar, and threw pebbles at the upstairs windows until one of his brothers let him in. Apparently, this is what he always did. Um, he immediately went into his mother's room and asked about her arm, and she said it was still very painful, but would be well in a few days. Um, well, if her wrist was fractured, it would not be well in a few days. And I did not see whether she was brought to the hospital or not, or what that would actually accomplish. But Frank then went downstairs onto the same floor his father's room was. While John Kerrigan was sleeping, his oldest son, Frank, crushed his skull in with the back of an axe just behind his right ear. 
I assume this means he was sleeping on his left side. There was no sign of a struggle. Likely he did not wake up. He was downstairs so long that she grew suspicious and sent her second oldest son, Eddie, down to check on him while she got dressed. As he was heading downstairs, he heard the back door open and shut. That was Frank leaving the house. Quote, a light was burning on the dining room table downstairs, and it shone into his father's bedroom, just off the dining room. Looking into the room, the boy saw an axe lying on the floor. He looked at the bed and was shocked to see bloodstains on the covering. At about 2.30 a.m., Patrolman Oberly was patrolling the streets when two boys wearing only their nightshirts ran over to him. It was Edwin and his brother John Kerrigan. One grabbed his arm and said, Come with us. Our father is killed. Frank, our big brother, did it. When they were within 50 feet of the house, they saw Frank Kerrigan running out of the yard towards the railroad. When Frank realized the patrolman was after him, he turned and ran back toward the house, which is a terrifying image. Patrolman Oberly caught him by the collar. Frank said to him, I'm all right. You'd better go into the house. I think you'll find something wrong in there. Oberly replied, that may be, but we will investigate that later. I want you now. Quote, Kerrigan uttered a terrible oath on hearing these words, and like a mad dog sprang toward Oberly's throat, both hands outstretched, the fingers claw-shaped, and ready to strangle if only they could reach. They fought, Oberly beat him over the head with his club, and he blew his whistle. Two officers arrived to help detain him. At this point, Frank was subdued from being beaten over the head with the club, and they dragged him into the house and into the room where his father lay dead. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not how I think one should contain a crime scene, but at least everyone knows who did it. Quote, Kerrigan presented a shocking sight as he stood in the dim light of the little oil lamp that stood on the bureau in the room. His face was covered with blood that streamed from the gashes made by Oberly's club. His hair was disheveled, his shirt torn, and his eyes were wild and bloodshot. A more horrible picture could not well be imagined. Mrs. Kerrigan's heartrending moans and shrieks from her room upstairs could be heard outside the house. Her children were huddled in a corner and would not go inside the room where their father lay dead. Quote, Frank Kerrigan said not a word as he was forced by the patrolman to remain in the room with the body of his father while the policeman made a hurried investigation. He looked for a moment at the bloody, gaping gash in the dead father's head and then at the pale, expressionless face. The murderer's countenance remained impassive all the time. So after the murders, a few things happened. So naturally, Frank Kerrigan was arrested and jailed but also Mrs. Kerrigan and her children were also, quote, locked up as witnesses. Ugh. And the body of John Kerrigan was taken for the autopsy. And this is what Coroner Kenny had to say. Coroner Kenny says the murderer struck but one blow and that it was the most brutal and cold-blooded blow ever struck in Buffalo. The drama, it's the drama for me. Mr. Kerrigan was lying in bed, sleeping on his left side in the most peace, peaceful manner. Now, I was proud of myself for guessing the correct side. Um, anyway, the son struck his father with the blunt end of the axe, and the entire right side of the old man's head was crushed in. His right ear was half crushed off, 
and the brains oozed out of the terrible gash. Some pieces of brain were found on the axe. The condition of the head showed that the blunt end of the axe was used, and Coroner Kenny said that because of the terrible force with which Frank struck his father, if the sharp end of the instrument had been used, the head would have been cleaved in twain. Now that is incredibly graphic. So the aftermath. So upon Frank's arrest, he claimed that he was innocent all afternoon, but then later he confessed. So I'm going to read you an article about his confession, and this should clear some things up. And also you can form some opinions about what is said. So this was the Buffalo News, August 27th, 1898. His awful crime fully confessed. Frank Kerrigan tells how he slew his aged father with an ax. Prisoner says he threw the old man's clothing out into the yard. Interesting plan. After protesting his innocence all the afternoon, Frank Kerrigan weakened last night and admitted, admitted having murdered his father with an ax early yesterday morning. It was a long story. He took his time in telling it. Trimmed of superfluous detail, it was in substance that enmity had been long existed, had long existed between Frank and his father. It was born of the difference in their respective dispositions. The father practiced sobriety in its incidental virtues. Frank followed intemperance in its various vices. Quarrels were frequent, frequent between them because of Frank's disclination to work. Drones were out of place in the Kerrigan household, his father told him. He was given to understand he must go to work or leave home. Mrs. Kerrigan, when quarrels arose between the father and son, invariably took Frank's part. She thought the old man was unnecessarily harsh with him, and her siding with him had its effect on Frank. As his dislike for his father increased, he grew to love his mother all the more. It was his fondness for her, exaggerated by the liquor, which inflamed his brain, that led him to crush his father's life out with an axe. Now that is some interesting wording there. His version of the killing did not differ essentially from the story related in yesterday's news. He admitted that he came home drunk about two o'clock. He went to his mother's room and talked with her for a few minutes. After leaving the room, he removed his outer clothing and went down the back stairs. He secured his father's clothing, turned the pockets inside out, and scattered the garments in the yard to make it appear that a burglar had stolen them and had taken them to the yard to rifle the pockets. Interesting plan. After scattering the garments, he went to the woodshed, got the axe, and stole back into the house. He turned up the wick of a lamp on the dining room table so that its rays penetrated the bedroom. His father's regular breathing was audible in the dining room. The old man lay on his back with his head turned toward the left. Frank raised the axe and struck four times at the old man's head. Only one blow took effect. His work accomplished, the murderer left the house and started in the in quest of a policeman and to summon a priest and physician by telephone. His object in doing so was to remove himself and to make it appear that he had discovered the body of his father after the latter had been murdered by a robber. Now that is interesting. Um, and I think, you know, he did throw the clothes outside, but did he really find his father's clothes before he murdered him? That seems a little unlikely to me. 
He wound up his story by saying his father had been abusing his mother for 20 years and that he thought he could kill the former and not get caught. Also, we can come to a conclusion later on whether or not you think abuse was involved, but it does come up again later. Arrangements have been made for the funeral of the murdered man, which will take place from St. Joseph's Cathedral tomorrow afternoon. And we will talk about the funeral as well. Um, so this is an interesting confession. I can't imagine that he got drunk, um, killed him, threw the clothes out, and then was going to look for a policeman. He was running towards the train tracks. So my guess is that he was trying to flee, but what do I know? Um, so interestingly, after that long-winded confession, um, the Monday after the murder, August 29th, Freight Kerrigan pleaded not guilty to murder in the first degree. This was at the police insisting he already confessed. Um, I find that part a little humorous because I'm just picturing them all in the courtroom like, what do you mean not guilty? He literally confessed and like this is police court. So they're probably all saying that. Um, we'll take it down a notch here. So we're going to talk about the funeral um it's very sad but i think it's worth sharing and this made me obviously feel bad for the victim john kerrigan who was obviously very well respected in his community but given some of the information we know um this just tidbit just made me start to feel a little bad for frank um don't come after me if you think that's weird but per the buffalo review um august 29th 1898 he saw his sire's funeral. Frank Kerrigan, from his grated cell in the jail, looked on the cortege services in cathedral. Coffin of the murdered man bore a sheaf of wheat, which was buried with it. The funeral of the late John Kerrigan, who was brutally murdered by his son Frank Kerrigan Friday morning, occurred yesterday afternoon. About two o'clock, the remains of the murdered man were taken from his late home at 32 Illinois Street to St. Joseph's Cathedral, where the plain black casket was placed on a small catafalque before the altar railing. Now, this is my third time trying to say the word catafalque, um, so I hope you're proud of me. But if, you're, if you didn't know what that was, it's a decorated wooden framework supporting the coffin of a distinguished person during a funeral or while lying in state. So thank you, Google Dictionary. To continue, no mass was solemnized, no flowers graced the somber box which bore the plain inscription, John Kerrigan, 62 years old. When the coffin was placed in its position near the altar, Edwin and John Kerrigan, sons of the deceased, placed a full sheaf of wheat on top of the casket. This emblem of a completed life remained on the coffin throughout the services and was buried with it. It is said that flowers sufficient to fill the entire Illinois street home where the murder was committed were sent to the house by friends and relatives, but all were gratefully declined and returned to the donors. In the mourner's pew at the cathedral were seated Bridget Kerrigan, the widow, Edwin, John, and Loretta Kerrigan, and Mrs. D.J. Nelligan. The funeral sermon was preached by Reverend, Reverend Father John D. Biden, that's a long name, 
rector of St. Joseph's, who was in his remarks made no reference whatever to the terrible tragedy, and simply referred to the deceased as an indulgent father and a loving husband possessing the virtue of the largest sympathy and greatest affection for his family. Long before the hour set for the beginning of the services, which was three o'clock, the cathedral was crowded to the doors by a congregation which remained throughout the entire service. Outside, the crush of carriages was great. Over a hundred vehicles were included in the cortege. The procession of hacks and carriages was so long that it reached from the door of the cathedral, where the hearse stood down Franklin to Church Street, down Church Street to Delaware Avenue, and along Delaware Avenue in front of the jail, and as far north as the municipal building. Murderer views the funeral. The cell which Frank Kerrigan, the murderer, occupies faces Delaware Avenue, and from his grated window he looked down in the street on his father's funeral procession. He asked a passing turnkey, as the bells were tolling, if that was his father's funeral, and upon the jailer nodding in the affirmative, the prisoner gave vent to loud hysterical sobbing, which continued long after the cortege had begun its journey to the cemetery. When the procession reached the Holy Cross Cemetery, there was a crowd of about 500 people about the grave. Here, the Reverend Father Nelson Baker performed the last services and the casket was lowered into the earth. At the grave, a sister of the deceased became hysterical and was with difficulty controlled. The pallbearers were eight members of Branch 22 of the CMBA, of which the, the deceased was a member. So obviously he was very well respected in the community. And personally, I think the image of Frank looking out onto the funeral and the grieving and the pain that he caused, and under different circumstances he would be a part of, I think that's a very haunting image. So let's talk about the sentencing and the official trial. So the official trial occurred in March of night, oh, goodness, of 1899. And I'm going to read you this clip um, from the Buffalo commercial, March 27th, 1899. For life, Frank Kerrigan sentenced for killing his father, John Kerrigan. He pleaded guilty. His plea of murder in the second degree was accepted by the court. Mr. Penny's statement. The district attorney outlined his reasons for accepting the plea, sympathy for the mother. Frank Kerrigan, who killed his father, John Kerrigan, in this city on August 28th last, was arraigned before Justice Lambert in criminal term of the Supreme Court by District Attorney Penny this morning. Now you'll, you probably caught that August 28th and August 27th are two different dates that were given. Um, that is very common in this time to misprint the actual date of things happening, but I'm inclined to believe it was August 26, considering that is the first day that the murder was reported. To continue, it had been rumored that the, pat the patricide stood willing to plead guilty to murder in the second degree, but would go on trial if the indictment of murder in the first degree was pressed. Kerrigan, in court, offered to plead guilty to murder in the second degree. Thereupon, District Attorney Penny addressed the court as follows. If the court please, should this case go to trial, it would undoubtedly appear from the testimony that this defendant had been in the habit of frequently getting drunk 
and was, according to the testimony of a number of witnesses, drunk at the time of the homicide. It would also appear by the testimony that this defendant, although he had sufficient mental ability to distinguish the nature and quality of an act and know when it was wrong, when sober, yet he was never of a very strong mental makeup, but rather weak and uncertain. I am convinced from a careful examination of the case that enough of that class of evidence would be introduced so that it would probably create in the minds of the jury a reasonable doubt as to whether this defendant had sufficient control over his mental faculties to be able to premeditate and deliberate upon the killing of the deceased, that is, as to whether the distinguishing elements between the murder in the first degree and murder in the second degree were present. It would also appear upon the trial that the most important witness for the people are the mother, two brothers and sister of the defendant, that they are very unwilling witnesses and that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to draw from them very important testimony if they were obliged to go upon that witness stand. The fact also that by avoiding a long, tedious trial, several thousand dollars will be saved to the county, it seems to me, should be considered. I am also informed that the aged mother of the defendant is in a critical condition owing to this trouble and the terrible mental strain which she has under undergone and if forced to go on the stand and testify against her son it would probably be the means of sending her to an insane asylum and possibly her death. Taking all these facts and circumstances into consideration. I do not believe this county to force this defendant to trial for the crime of murder in the first degree, when he stands ready to plead to murder in the second degree. Therefore, if the court approves of my action and believes that the ends of justice will be sub subserved, I am inclined to accept the plea offered. Senate Mackey also addressed the court on behalf of the prisoner. Justice Lambert accepted the plea. Justice Lambert then sentenced Kerrigan to Auburn for life. Now this next part I found unique and from all the newspaper articles that I read and I read a lot of them, um, everyone that I could get my hands on because I'm obsessive like that, um, it seems like the people who jailed Frank um, really liked him, which was interesting. Um, so maybe that's why this was allowed because this is the first time I've heard of it. Let me know if I'm wrong, but this was from the Buffalo News, March 30th, 1899. Last visit to his home, Frank Kerrigan bids a final farewell to his aged mother. Deputy Sheriff Harry Kayser yesterday afternoon took Frank Kerrigan, who has been sentenced to Auburn prison for life for the murder of his father, to the Kerrigan home on Fulton Street to say farewell to his aged mother. The parting was sad and affecting, and Kerrigan went back to the jail badly broken up. Deputy Kayser expected to go on to Auburn today with Kerrigan, but Sheriff Kerrigan did not issue the order up to 10 o'clock this morning, so he may remain in the jail for a few days longer. Um, so interestingly, they let him stay until after the Easter holiday so that it would be easier for relatives to visit him. Um, so that I find unique. Um, so speaking of reading all the newspapers. So I personally comb through every single year after this until his, um, where I believe his death would be. And this is where I found 
another article about his sentencing here. And it is glitching. Give me a moment. Um, okay, so this is the Buffalo News, December 19th, 1906. So we are jumping seven years. Kerrigan's life term commuted. Buffalo man convinced, convicted rather, of patricide may go free in about three years. Word has been received from Albany that Governor Higgins has commuted the sentence of Frank Kerrigan of Buffalo from life imprisonment at Auburn to 16 years. Kerrigan is a young man yet. With the reduction for good behavior, he probably will be released in about three years. Kerrigan killed his father with an axe while the latter was asleep in bed. The family lived on Elk Street near Illinois. <laughs> Three different newspapers say different streets. The elder Kerrigan, it is said, had ill-treated his wife the evening of the murder. The communi- The communi- Oh my goodness. Commutation is a result of the mother's plea to the government for mercy. She claimed Frank killed his father to protect her after her husband had broken her arm. Justice Lambert, who presided at the trial at, in 1899, and District Attorney Penny endorsed Mrs. Kerrigan's plea. Um, so I do find that very interesting that after all these years, the mother did come forward and officially state that he did kill the father because he broke her arm. Um, and then whether he was let out, I'm not sure. I looked at every single, uh, any article that I could find, and it seems that he has disappeared. Um, but I'm going to take that to mean that he was released, um, possibly in 1909, and perhaps lived a better life after that. So the family dynamics here and the reasoning behind the murder is obviously very complex to say the least. But the point is to remember the victim, John Kerrigan, and Captain Taylor of the police department once stated, I have known John Kerrigan for at least 30 years. He was a hardworking and industrious man. He was one of the neatest and cleanest men in the neighborhood. His clothes always looked fine, and I often wondered how he could keep himself so neat while doing the work of carting as he was. Now, being hardworking and industrious and neat and clean very high praise in the Victorian era, I must say. So next for some fun and or rather some morbid bonuses here. So looking through all of the newspaper articles, I stumbled on these two. So on November 22nd of 1899, his old clothes, Frank Kerrigan's raiment put up at auction with strange result, fell to pieces in auctioneer's hands as he asked for bids upon the same. I'm sorry, what? A murderer's clothes, offered for sale at police headquarters yesterday, fell to pieces in the hands of the auctioneer and lay on the floor a moldy, rotten mass to be swept out and burned. The crowd of Hebrew second-hand dealers fell back when they learned who had worn the garments, and not a man in the throng of bidders was sorry that he had not been given a chance to buy the goods. 
The clothes were those of Frank Kerrigan, who murdered his father, John Kerrigan, in Illinois Street early in the morning of August 26, 1898, and who pleaded guilty to murder in the second degree and was sentenced to Auburn Prison for life on March 27th last. At the time of the murder, Kerrigan was removed from police headquarters to the jail and in the course of time a tailor came and measured him for a suit of clothes. The discarded suit was taken away and presumably to police headquarters, but investigation showed that it was taken home, the one which he wore at the time of the murder having been exchanged before he left the freezer before he left, the freezer for the county institution. So the clothes in which Kerrigan was dressed when he stole into his father's bedroom and brained him with an axe were at headquarters all the while, and the family of the prisoner never claimed them. Um, yeah, so that's pretty messed up, how that accidentally ended up going up for auction. Um, um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Clothes brought good officers, and the auctioneer expected a good price as he placed up the bundle containing the murderer's garments. Here's a suit of clothes, gentlemen. May have been lost by a millionaire and may have been left behind by a tramp at his first bath. You've got to take chances on that, shouted the auctioneer. What am I offered for? Then Mr. Taggart stopped, for the clothes had fallen to pieces in his hands. Mr. Taggart examined the record and stated that the clothes had belonged to Frank Kerrigan, the murderer. My God, murmured a second-hand dealer. Should I have got those clothes? Such a beesness. Um, so I couldn't find what the hell beesness was supposed to mean. Um, so if you know or if you've heard of it, um, please let me know. Um, the sale went on, but there were many glances cast at the rotted clothes before the bidding took a more humorous turn or the sale ended. Um, wow. Um, just wow. So, and another morbid tidbit from February 2nd, 1914, the Buffalo Morning Express. Relics of many crimes. New Curio Gallery is opened at police headquarters, a gruesome sight. Famous murders recalled by weapons on examination. So, this gallery in 1914 included the axe which Frank Kerrigan used to murder his father. So, I mean, I've seen axes on display before, like the, I believe the Felisca axe murder axe was available to be viewed at one point. I'm not sure if it is right now. I tried to find out and was inconclusive on that. Um, I do know that the Smutty Nose Murders Axe is displayed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but it just goes to show we were just as weird and messed up in 1914 as we are now, um, over a hundred years later. I mean, I think 1914 is a little too soon to be showing that, but anyway. That is the episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please feel free to leave a review. If you did not, um, don't do that. <laughs> but thanks for listening anyway, and stay spooky. Bye.